0: This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan, and today is Sunday, October the 2nd, 2022. Today's message is building upon just an incredibly important concept that we saw right at the end of Paul's Wonderful pastoral prayer with which he opens the letter to the Colossians there in Colossians chapter one. So, when we get to that, you'll see where I'm going with that. But that, that's what we're going to do today. But before there, a couple of uh, programming things I'd like to um, run by you. Maybe you can give me some input. First of all, I'll let you know the following two Sundays, um, I'm not going to have my messages posted. I'm actually going to be out of town with my wife. And we have some wonderful guest speakers at Trinity. You can track with that through our Facebook Live. Um, the that we that we do of, of all of our services and um, but I, I'm not going to be pre-recording any messages for the following two weeks so there'll be a two week hold of my podcast. The second thing is is I've had some feedback. As right now I'm recording this actually on Friday, September the 30th. That's when I'm actually recording this. I'm sitting at my desk in my house. I post these online through through the podcast and on the church website. And a few people have said, Ethan, why don't you just do the audio of your actual sermon that you preach at Edwards? And I could do that. And if I did that, I would actually wear a separate recording device, and um, myself or someone would do the processing on that um, after church on Sunday, and that would be posted up to the, the church website and the podcast by Sunday afternoon, late later Sunday Um, of of hopefully the same day that the message was given. And so I'm deciding whether or not I wanna go there. If I wanna do that, keep doing the way I've got it now, or just do that. So if you listen to this and you have a a thought, an opinion, shoot me an email, uh, ethan at trinityvale.com. So with that, (laughs) I am glad that you're with me today. And let's jump in. I wanna start with a thought experiment. I want you to think of a statement, a concept, that is very important to your life. I mean, absolutely central. Something that you know by heart, that you've discussed many times. And yet, for you and everyone else for whom this concept is just as central and important, there'd be lots of differing thoughts about what it actually means. And you yourself may have trouble actually explaining and putting to words what this central concept actually means. Let me give you an example. Let's take as Americans, one of the most central things to our identity as Americans is a famous statement from the Declaration of Independence. And it's this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, so that they, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And for some of you out there, you are quoting that in your mind with me because you know it, it's central, it's important. My friends, what does it mean? A few, few examples here. Just who is all men? <laughs> That's mean, that has meant different things at different times in our country, right? Does it include women? Is it just citizens, right? These unalienable rights, what are those rights? Are they really equally shared by all? What is liberty? What do we mean when we say liberty? Right? What does it look like for a society to allow everyone equally the opportunity to pursue happiness? Right. Since the day the Declaration of Independence was written and made known, people have debated what it actually means. Now, in Christianity, there are concepts that are absolutely central to our faith, things we speak about all the time that we hold to be true, but at the same time, we may struggle to comprehend, right? even articulate what they actually mean. So, when we come across concept and statements like this, there's a really helpful question that we should bring to bear. And the question is, what does that mean? All right, I hear, I hear the statement, yes, I believe that's true, but what does it mean? How is this truth fully understood and how is it worked out in the midst of everyday life? There are many examples that we could give on this, right? What do we mean when we say scripture is inspired? What do we mean when we say that God will provide? I mean, we could talk about this for a long time. But the example, the big example that I want to give right now is something that we see in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And again, this is where we ended last week, if you're following us in our journey through Colossians, where Paul said, For he, God, has rescued us from dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Oh, what a statement and what a concept, forgiveness. My friends, it may be impossible to find any other concept that is so absolutely central and essential to the New Testament Christian theology. It's tremendously important, but what does it mean? So here's my question for you. What does it mean that in Christ, we are forgiven? I mean, think about that for just a second, right? What questions come to mind? Well, how are we forgiven? What leads to that? And by the way, there are multiple different things in scripture that speak to this and they don't all say the same. Is forgiveness incremental? We have been forgiven. Are we still forgiven now? Why is it important that God forgives us? Is this just something about the future? Or is this something that has meaning and purpose in our lives today? Why do we even need to be forgiven? What are we forgiven of? Now that's the easy one, right? Right? would say, well, we're forgiven of our sins. We see that throughout the New Testament. In fact, Paul just said that right there in Colossians 1. In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, but again, what does that mean? My friends, I'll suggest to you that if we really want to understand the significance of what it means that in Christ we are forgiven because this is so important and it's easy for us to lose sight and maybe minimize just how important it is. So to really start to wrap our brains and get a hold of this, we first need to take a step deeper and ask the question, just what do we mean by sin? Now that's a question. You know, you get a bunch of Christians in the room together and put that question out, what do we mean by sin? What is, what is sin? You might get a lot of different answers. And quite frankly, you might get a whole lot of silence. So let's talk about this. On a surface level, a very common idea that we have that I remember being taught this, I heard this a lot growing up in church, is that sin is missing the mark. Okay? This is the idea that God is perfect. And so sin is when we fall short of God's perfection. And we may quote, out of context, I would argue, Matthew 5:48, where Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so when we're not perfect, that is sin. And there's this image often given of, a, of an archer, a bow and an arrow, shooting at the bullseye, and anything except hitting the bullseye, right, that is sin, it's missing the mark, it's falling short. Now, at an abstract level we can make this case, but there's, there's a problem with this. It's a very limited um, way to start to understand this incredibly important concept of sin. Because if this is how we primarily think about sin, missing the mark, falling short of God's perfection, then our concept of sin is very likely going to grow, right? It's expand from being about willfully disobedience, willful disobedience, to just human failure in general. You see, by definition, my friends, we fall short of God all the time in everything because He is God and we are not. And this can make failure itself to be seen as sinful. Even when we are, in, or even when we are sincerely and honestly trying, you might remember the example I gave last week. You know, if there's parents with a toddler who's just starting to toddle, and this this child is standing up and walking, beginning to walk, and the parents are there encouraging it, saying, "Come to us," and the child takes a few steps and then booms down on its bottom. They don't condemn the child. They don't call the child a failure. You're sinning, right? You 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 failed. You fell short of the, the goal. No, they're thrilled even though the child is failing in its process of learning. And so, but, but if that is where we can go, and listen, I, I think some of you know this, there are Christian traditions that have gone there, is that ultimately the Christian life just comes to be defined by our sin and our failure, which ironically dilutes rather than strengthens the concept of sin. Because if I'm just sinning in everything, then sin tends to lose its meaning. But if we take a step deeper, we see this meaning and emphasis that is most common in Christian culture and in Christian teaching when it comes to sin. And this is the idea of sin as behavior, right? Sin as moral imperfection, right? Sin being when we violate God's moral teaching, right? The idea of morally negative thoughts and actions. Sin is choosing wrong over right, bad over good. Now, For this to be the case, of course, we must have a standard for God's morality, a definition of what is right and what is wrong. And now when we look into the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, of course, that would be the law, the Ten Commandments, the Mosaic law. And even today, many, many people, many, many churches hold this up as a source of biblical morality, right? That's why we see Ten Commandments monuments and all the debate over the Ten Commandments monuments around our country. The problem though here is that the law is the Old Covenant, and we now live in the New Covenant. Now we covered this in depth back in Acts when we talked about the Jerusalem Council. And if you weren't with us then and you have no idea what I'm talking about, oh my friend, that is an absolutely central thought. Reach out to me and I'll send you links to those messages because it's incredibly important. But this is the reality that now in Christ, in the New Covenant, The Old Testament or Old Covenant law is no longer our source of moral teaching or moral rightness. Now, you may say, what in the world is Ethan talking about? Again, for instance, it's a different topic. It's very, very important. And if that is new to you, I'd love to have that conversation with you. But so we turn to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, we see a variety of places where there is specific moral teaching teaching of Jesus, other places where it's Paul for the bulk of it, maybe other New Testament writers, where we have what we, what we might call sin lists. And one is right here in Colossians. We'll get to it in a month or so. Colossians 3, verses five through eight, where Paul says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, right, to our flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry, because of these the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways and the life you once lived. But now you must also rid yourselves of all things such as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. And don't lie to each other. Now, my friends, these thoughts and behaviors clearly are being taught that they are morally wrong. And so we think when we do these things we are disobedient and we sin. The problem though, if that's the only way we think of sin, is that in the New Testament, really throughout all of scripture, sin isn't just choosing to do things that are morally negative. It's also failure to obey God's commands that are morally positive. It's not just the choice to do what is wrong, it is the failure to do what is right. And it is humbling to know, by the way, My friends, that the New Testament speaks more about the good that we are called into than it does the bad we are called out of. And that's an important thought, because when we define sin primarily in terms of behavior, it's really easy to be tempted to de-emphasize the teaching that would impact us and emphasize the teaching or the moral teaching that impacts others. Likewise, it's very tempting to emphasize certain moral prohibitions while minimize the New Testament clear teaching of how we are to live, what we are to do. Examples of this, the call to sacrificial service, to love our neighbors, to respect and live in obedience to our governmental authorities. Uh, That's an inconvenient one, isn't it? Because to be clear... Scripture does contain significant teaching both about what a morally obedient life won't look like and what it will look like. And both are incredibly important. And we may accurately describe sin as the choice to be disobedient to either. And yet, this is still an incomplete picture. Because, you see, the New Testament also describes sin as a lack of faith. In Romans 14, 23, we read, this is Paul, Romans 14, it's a very significant passage, so there's an important context around this, but just go into this statement. Paul says, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat. If you want to know what he means there, you need to go read Romans 14. But whoever has doubts, let's say, who condemned, whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And then here's the statement, and everything that does not come from faith Is sin huh now again there's an important context there but if we explore this teaching it seems that what God is really after is faith and trust in him right a faithful yieldedness that leads to a changed heart not just moral compliance and in this consideration of sin we see the importance of conscience and the fascinating truth that there may be things that are sinful for one person and not for another. Okay, guys, that is a truth that is easily distorted if we are seeking to justify ourselves, but it points us also to the even deeper origin of sin itself, and to talk about that, we need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter three, which of course is the fall Adam and Eve, and the day everything broke bad. And this is the discussion of the essence of original sin. All right, so let's read from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. By the way, I didn't say this again at the beginning of my message, but if you, if you don't have your Bible, pause right now and go get it. I'd, I'd like you to see this actually in the text of your own Bible. Okay, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And this is the famous passage where we read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. Oh, you will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Okay, guys, here's a question. What was Adam and Eve's sin? We would answer, well, they ate the apple. God said, don't eat from the fruit. I say apple. We don't know. (laughs) Almost certainly wasn't an apple, right? That's tradition. They ate the fruit, right? From the tree in the middle of the garden. They disobeyed God's command. We'd say, okay, that was their sin. But friends, here's the real question. When that happened, what moral understanding did Adam and Eve have about right and wrong? Let me just say that again. When Adam and Eve were disobedient to God, the point of original sin, what moral understanding did they have about the concept or any detail of right and wrong? And the answer is none. None. the concepts of good and bad did not yet have any meaning to them. And friends, this is absolutely key because what we see is that original sin and the essence of sin today, and essence is a key word there, the essence of sin today is not a moral choice between right and wrong. Rather, what we see is that sin at its core, right, it isn't the question of what is right, it is the question of who is God. You see, Adam and Eve's sin was a failure to live in trust and dependence on the goodness of God, to be obedient to him because they believed and they trusted that he is good. And in that moment, they elevated the authority of self over the authority of God. They choose to trust in the wisdom of themselves rather than trust in the goodness of God. And so today, sin, in its essence, is not just a failure, it's not a failure to miss the mark of moral perfection. Right? Those are details. Rather, when it comes down to it, sin is the choice to live in dependence upon ourselves rather than live in trust and dependence in God. Now, we come back and say, okay, Ethan, but what does that mean? What does that look like? What does it look like to live in trust and dependence upon God? My friends, the reality is, right? Here's a statement for you. By the way, if you're following along with me and in in the outline that I have online, I have this all written out. But to live in faith, trust, and dependence upon God, right, with Christ as our source of life, in our mind, our will, and our emotions, this will be to live increasingly in a natural obedience to the nature and character of God. Right? That is a description of what the garden was in Genesis chapter 2 prior to the fall, prior to Adam and Eve saying, no, we are now our own arbiter of what is right and wrong. We are now living by our own wisdom rather than trusting in the wisdom and goodness of God. Okay? So the question, I've got a lot of questions today. The follow-up question is, friends, if if God's call to us, which is the opposite of sin, is to live in dependence upon him, which will result, again, increasingly in our obedience naturally to the nature and character of God, right? what is the defining reality of the nature and character of God, from which all of God's other attributes flow? For instance, the answer is love. It is love. Therefore, the essence of sin isn't just a failure to measure up to the moral code of what is right and wrong. My friends, the essence of sin is the failure to love. So what I don't want to give you here is a working definition of sin. Again, I have this written out in my outline. And many other people have said things very, very similar to what I'm about to say. I, this is my wording of this idea, of this concept. A working definition of sin it is the condition of valuing my own wisdom and authority above god's presence nature and authority right parenthetically we could say self-centeredness or this very important new testament doctrine called the flesh and this then leads me or right? that's the core but this leads to an inevitable result this leads me than to violate God's love for myself and others. Parenthetically, be it because of fear, anger, pride, jealousy, prejudice, self-protection, self-gratification, ignorance, etc. My friends, the bottom line is, I sin when I violate God's love for his creation. And this includes, most importantly, all people, including you. And my friends, this now brings us back full circle to our great need of forgiveness. Here's the truth. We violate God's love for people all the time. All the time. I mean, let's be honest. Let's really think through our days and what this looks like. We violate God's love for people all the time. And when we do, we cause harm. We hurt people. Maybe it's tiny and we don't think anything of it, but we cause harm. I mean, think of this. When I violate God's love for another person, whatever way that takes its form, right? there's the injury to the person that is impacted by my action. But it doesn't stop there. There's the injury to those that may happen to them, to those around them that I may not see. Maybe their family, right? There is also the truth, because it doesn't stop there. When we do this, this injures us. It hardens our heart, or perhaps it brings guilt and shame. It steals away joy. And taking a step beyond that, my friends, it injures, it tears at the fabric of society itself. And we see this manifested so much in our world today. I mean, guys, think of it. When I dare consider the totality, if I even could, the totality of how I have caused harm through my violations of God's love for every people. Well, my friends, I need to be forgiven. And so do you. We all do in a way more profound than we can even begin to comprehend. Now, I want to push into this a little deeper still and ask you to consider with me a thought about judgment. Because this may be one of the biggest ways we think about forgiveness, right? If we we believe in Jesus, we're forgiven of our sins. Therefore, we won't have to face judgment and the consequences of our sin. We need to hold on there. Scripture, in fact, does say that we will, all of us, that we will face judgment. We all, believer and unbeliever alike, according to Scripture, will give an account of ourselves before God. Right, just to point a couple of things here, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Wow. Romans 14, 10-12. You then, why do you judge your brother or your sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. As it is written, As surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Church, this is a huge theological topic. And if that makes us uncomfortable, it should. I want to share a thought. This is from an author that I recently heard in, in a podcast. And he describes the scene of judgment. Okay? So I just want you to go here with me for a moment. Imagine being before God on Judgment Day. And in that place and time, God opens my eyes so that I see, even more I feel, I completely experience and understand what happened every time I violated God's love for another person. Every time I hurt one of his children. What came to my mind is a story I shared with you just a couple of weeks ago. I think of this young woman walking down the sidewalk in Frisco about whom I made a snarky comment and I judged her based on her appearance. Now, she didn't hear me, but my condescension, my condescension in that moment, joined with the condescension that she has faced from people, probably for many years in her life, that she did hear. That's all the while, like all of us, she's dealing with her circumstances, her brokenness, her confusion, and her fears. It's the best that she can. And then, right in that moment, somehow supernaturally, God enabled me to see every time my failure to love and my actions and my inactions contributed to systems that violate God's love for people. And as I stand there recognizing the hurt that I caused. I'm overwhelmed because it's the crushing realization that there is no way ever that I could take that hurt away. There is no way that I could make it right. I would be done, undone, finished. But then, in a scene, in a moment, impossible to even begin to grasp, the voice of Christ comes to me. Because you see, he's been right there all the time. And he says, my child, look at me. You are not condemned. I do not condemn you. In this place, no one condemns you. For on the cross, I bore upon myself the totality of the hurt that was caused by your sin, the totality of the pain that was caused by your failure to love. And you do not have to bear this because I bore it for you. My child, you are forgiven. You have been. You are And you always will be. But not only that, you need to know that you have been, and you are, and you always will be, my beloved. So come and enter into my rest. Oh, my friends, this brings us to the absolute miracle of redemption. You see, in the great hope of redemption, forgiveness isn't just about the removal of punishment. It's not just the removal of the the eternal consequences of sin. Even more, so much more, my friends, redemption. There in Colossians, when Paul says in him, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Even more, forgiveness through the lens of redemption It is the removal of the barrier between us and God. It is the miracle where Christ proclaims, not only do I not condemn you, I have claimed you as my very own, as my child, as my beloved. And I am making you new, giving you new life, my life. And I'm taking you as my bride and you are one with me. Friends, there's a story in the Gospels of a real person that illustrates this this amazing truth in a powerful, beautiful way. You're well familiar with it, and it's from John chapter 8. It's the story of a woman who is caught in adultery, and she's dragged before before the religious authorities who bring her to Jesus, right? Exploiting her in an attempt to entrap Jesus. And her accusers point to the moral code, And they say, Moses commands us to stone such woman, to stone such women. Now, they were correct. You can go look that up. It's in Deuteronomy. Although it turns out they left out half the verse, the half of the verse that also condemned the man to death in the case of adultery. But in any case, the law, the moral principle at hand, condemned this woman to death. But Jesus didn't stop at the principle. I mean, you know the story, don't you? Jesus said, if any of you are without sin, you throw the first stone. And one by one, her accusers left. For this is striking. Here is Jesus, the sinless Son of God, defending this woman who is guilty of sin. And he's defending her against those who are confident in their religious authority to condemn her with God's own moral law. But then the voice, just this, the, the beautiful part of this story, says that Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Oh, my friends, think of this. When Jesus said, I do not condemn you, that's forgiveness, that's forgiveness. And when he said, go and leave your life of sin, that's redemption. For when we look behind this story, at the broader story of Jesus, we can know that Jesus did not leave this woman on her own. Like so many others, she would have followed him, learned from him, and started the journey of healing, acceptance, and restoration. It's fascinating that church tradition holds that that woman was in fact Mary Magdalene. We don't know that for sure. There's a lot of, there, you can make a biblical, a New Testament argue, argument for it, and there's a lot of tradition behind that. But that would have been, the condemned woman who was redeemed by Jesus, who would then follow Jesus to the foot of the cross, where she witnessed the cosmic act of love that made it possible for her and for you and I, for all of humanity, to be truly and fully redeemed. My friends, that is a powerful story because it is our story. Just one more thought. Friends, when we consider the hope of redemption, this isn't just about the future of eternity, but the wonderful, the great reality that our hope for tomorrow is our reality today. Because, friends, when we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, right, and we are growing in the good of this truth today, Many other things begin to be to begin to be true. At the barrier between you and God, this means the barrier between you and God has been removed. Right? Now you are accepted. You are his beloved. But when we begin to really live in the power of the truth that in Christ we are forgiven, that we have, we live as forgiven, redeemed people then we may begin to know freedom from shame, freedom from guilt, because these things, this is not who we are. Our identity is now, and that we are a new creation in Christ. We may know freedom from legalism and performance-based acceptance. We may enter into the freedom to forgive others, to see others with the eyes of Jesus that forgave us. Who forgave us? And my friends, that can lead, if we will go there, and this can be a journey, and the Holy Spirit has to open our heart and enable us to do it, but that can lead us into freedom from the exhaustion of reacting to the people around us in judgment and condemnation. This can lead us into freedom from fear and freedom from being easily influenced and manipulated by fear because we know who we are and there's no barrier between us and God. And friends, because we are redeemed, because we are God's beloved, we have have entered into, we have been released and called into the freedom to love, to love ourselves and to love other people, to be through how we live, the healing balm of the love of God, bringing hope, peace, and restoration into our world, rather than being people who are contributing to its hurt. And all of these are a journey. Everything that I just said, this isn't just a snap of the finger. You know, so often in Christian culture, we'll you know, see teaching or things that you know we just believe right, and all of a sudden, just all the bad goes away, and we are free, and everything's great. We're just you know, rainbows and unicorns in the kingdom of God. I rarely think it's that way. These are journeys. This is real stuff. And the Holy Spirit has to, we, 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 we need to be open in our hearts and minds to how the Holy Spirit will lead us to understand and enter into these areas of freedom and goodness. I think that's part of what Paul meant what he was praying for, when he said, I'm praying that you would know that you have knowledge of the will of God so that by the Spirit you would have wisdom and understanding. But friends, the invitation and the gift of forgiveness and redemption is very, very real. And that, that my friends, that is good news. Church, I love you. Thank you for tracking with me today. I encourage you to consider these things. On our church's website and in the outline that I have there, I have a series of discussion questions. If you want to think through this a little deeper yourself, or maybe talk through this concept with some friends of yours. Listen, I said something that, I, that not everybody's gonna agree with when I said that when it comes down to it, sin is a violation of God's love for other people. And not just other people, but for ourselves. I encourage you to give that some thought. And what would that look like? What would that mean in our lives today? So again, thank you for being here with me. And I will see you in three weeks. And until then, take care.